Go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We've been in the Gospel of John for, for just over a year now, and go every once in a while to take a break. Um, so we're turn to Matthew chapter 25, contrary to your bulletins that say Matthew chapter 18. Um, I made several mistakes on the bulletins this week, and so unless you write something important down on them, you can just toss them on your way out uh, and not focus on my many errors. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to pick up in verse 14 and look at a story that Jesus told. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, and this is what Jesus said. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you deliver to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What am I doing with what I've been given? That is the question that as we study our passage this morning, I want you to answer We've come to a particular story that Jesus told, recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. And and what it does is it illustrates for us a truth that, quite honestly, should have a profound effect on the way that we live our lives. 
It's a truth that when rightly understood should shape our view of, of really everything that we have. And not only everything that we have, but everything that you and I do. The truth that should cause us to pause and ask the question, what am I doing with what I've been given? Now, the type of story we come to this morning is called a parable. And in case you don't know, parables are, well, they're a particular kind of story. They're not the same as, as fables. You see, fables don't depict real-life situations, and, and neither are parables allegories. You see, allegories are stories which every single little detail has some sort of hidden meaning. And Well, if we, if we approach a parable like, a, like an allegory, we... We might look for some supposed interpretation that really wasn't meant there to begin with. A parable is really a comparison. A parable is a comparison, and, and what it does is it illustrates for us a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth. And so, so what Jesus does is he takes a, a hard, complex to understand truth, and then he lays it right next to story, an earthly story, physical story. And it helps us to unlock the meaning. So if you think about the story of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the Pharisee, and the tax collector, and, and all the parables that we find in the Bible, they all point to something deeper. They all point to something more, something spiritual, earthly stories that illustrate heavenly reality. Now the context of this story is in a string of parables. In, in chapters uh, 24 and 25, all of them are dealing with the return of Christ. Five times in chapter 25 and five times in chapter 24, Jesus tells us that no one knows when Christ will return. And so over and over, Jesus is driving home the point that we who profess Christianity should be ready for His return. That we should live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come again. And here, in, in these verses, Jesus is concerned with the life that we live in between His first coming and His second coming. But I want you to notice, He's not just telling us to be ready. He's telling us to be productive. I mean, Jesus clearly indicates in this story that this waiting period is not an idle time. We're not merely watching for Christ's return, but we're being fruitful in the light of His coming return. But it's simply, He doesn't want us to waste our lives. Think of a tombstone for a second. A tombstone contains a date of birth. It contains a date of death. And in between it contains a dash. Above these things is you know, the name of the deceased person and, and maybe something, a statement about them. But, but I want you to think about the dash. The dash is talking about what happens between your beginning on this earth and your end on this earth. And, and when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, He's going to want to discuss the dash. He's going to want to discuss what you did from the time that you were born to the time that you died. He's going to want to know what you did to serve His eternal purposes. Notice in verse 14, he begins by likening the situation to a man who is going on a journey. And it's a rather long journey. 
And, and so what you have during that time is an absentee master. And here the master, what he does is he takes three servants and he entrusts them with, with resources, resources that belong to him. And, and to the first he gives five talents, to the second he gives two talents, and to the third servant he gives one talent. Now, Jesus' readers in this day and age, they would have easily understood this because it wasn't uncommon for this to, to happen. A, a wealthy master would sometimes go on a long journey and travel for, for quite some time, and well, during that time, he needed some people to look after all of his stuff, because when you're wealthy, you know, you, you have all sorts of stuff. You get house sitters, and people look over your things, and your, your fields, and your businesses, and that sort of thing, so, so he hires some help. But notice, he doesn't just look for caretakers. He looks for people who are going to take what he has, and invest it. Use it to the master's benefit. Now, our English word talent refers to typically someone's abilities to accomplish something. Often above average ability. So you might say so-and-so has some musical talent. You might say your, your pastor has no musical talent. You could use it in the, the negative sense. But we, but we use it to refer to some sort of innate ability, something that we can normally do. But in the original Greek, the word talent means something a bit different. Talent refers to a large sum of money. So when we look at this parable, we shouldn't think that the master just left each servant with above average ability. I mean, he didn't teach one to play classical piano and one how to ride a unicycle with juggling and the other to knit a sweater underwater. I mean, you get the point. That's not how he left them. He left all three of them with a very large sum of money. Talent referred to a measure of weight, and that's why in Revelation it, it, it talks about a hailstorm weighing a talent. Uh, a talent, that sort of weight, had somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds, and therefore a talent of gold or silver would be a huge sum of money. I mean, one commentator says that a day laborer would have to work more than 19 years just to earn one talent. Which means... A servant with five talents as well as a servant with two talents. And even the servant with one talent had an unbelievable amount entrusted to them. And the only thing this implies is that what God has entrusted to his people is nothing less than weighty. It's nothing less than greatness. It's, it's, it's precious. It's important. It's valuable. Whatever God has entrusted to believers is of great significant importance. So you might ask, well, what is it that God has entrusted to believers? Certainly at a base level, we've all been entrusted with the gospel. We see in 2 Timothy that Paul is reminding Timothy that he's been entrusted with the gospel. It's this gospel of Jesus Christ that God has mandated we share with, with everyone. This is the gospel that we live out. This is the gospel that we hold up to other people as as the greatest thing that could ever be understood and believed and trusted in. At the same time, it's perfectly valid application to say that God has, at the same time, entrusted us with certain abilities. We, we look at places like 1 Corinthians 12, that, that all Christians have been given gifts. And, and there's a variety of gifts, and some are gifted in teaching and shepherding, administration, helps, and so on and so forth. And so, of course, we've... We've been given 
tangible resources as well. Wealth, things, money, time. Don't miss what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, the master has given each according to ability. And so it would seem that God has given more to some and less to others, but still keeping in mind that even the person with one talent had an enormous amount of money. Uh, to give you an idea, one talent in today's wages could be somewhere between three hundred and $800,000. So all three servants had been given something incredible. And what we must remember is that both the, the five-talent and the two-talent servants received the same commendation from the master. They got to the very end and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. So what's the master looking for? The master is looking for faithfulness. And when you think about the body of Christ and each part of the body functioning for the health of the whole and, 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 and using our abilities and our gifts and our talents and our resources and, 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 and holding the gospel entrusted to us out to a world that needs the gospel. The point is that Christ has furnished His church, His people with everything they need for the sake of building up the kingdom. For the sake of ministry, for the betterment of the body, for the advancement of the gospel. And so that's why we have to come to this and ask the question, what am I doing with what I've been given? Before us is an opportunity to do much or little. As the story continues in verse 16 and following, the one with five talents, he invests them and he makes five talents more. So he he makes double his, his money, or I shouldn't say his money, he makes double the master's money. The one with two talents invests them and makes two more. So again, you have a double return. And the one with a single talent buries it in the ground. Now, of course, what the master does is the journey ends at some point and he comes back and he wants to settle accounts. Stop right there. That tells us something. He wants to settle accounts. You see, we often come under this delusion that the only thing that matters is, is our initial relationship with Jesus Christ that we've, we've made in, in the past, that we've, we've checked off some box, we've prayed a prayer, we've, we've walked an aisle, we've, we've said we believe, we've made a verbal profession, and that's really it. But here Jesus is calling for an account of those who claim to belong to Him. And so what this tells us is that how we live our lives as believers matters. Ultimately matters. What we do for Him, what we don't do for Him, matters. And in Jesus' contrast of the servants, the focus seems not to be on the two who had the bigger return on the vestment. But the focus seems to be on the one who's buried. This parable deals immensely with the person who did absolutely nothing. Now, Jesus isn't telling the story to somehow promote salvation by works. Jesus is telling the story to warn against the kind of Christianity that makes an empty profession. The focus here is on the servant who did absolutely nothing with everything that he had been given. You see, the faithfulness and diligence of the first two servants 
is a simple expression of their love and loyalty to the master. I mean, have you noticed in this passage how we're told as soon as the master gave them the money, what they did? It said that they immediately went out and invested it. There was no time wasted. There was no complaining. There was no questioning. There was, they saw a tremendous responsibility and privilege given to them. And they were anxious to do the master's business. The other servant, on the other hand, is lazy. His laziness in taking care of the talent is a reflection of the, of the lack of love and loyalty that he actually has for the master. There seems to be no sense of obligation to him. He simply takes the talent and buries it in the ground. He doesn't even have the will to get up and take it to the bank. This is a sober warning that Jesus gives to us, isn't it? I mean, has not God given us gifts in order that we might bear fruit? And so the person who views Christianity as something that is in addition to their already pretty good life, as, as, as something that at times could be burdensome to serve or, or, or drain on their free time, and there's no desire to see the kingdom of God spread. And, and this passage is about that person. This passage is about the person who makes an empty profession. The reality is we'll all have to give an account to the Master. So verse 19, an account is given and there's no uncertainty. Jesus is depicting the final judgment and the fact that judgment and reward will be in accordance with our faithfulness. Sometimes we get into this type of thinking that, that there, there is no rewards, and when we think about the life to come, the new heavens and the new earth, we say, I'll just be happy to be there. But yet the New Testament is replete with examples and instructions for us to live for the reward. And so you have the first servant who's rewarded, and the second servant who's rewarded, and the third servant who's condemned. In fact, you'll notice the first two servants who are loyal and good and trustworthy servants, when they see the Master has returned, they go to Him with a sense of enthusiasm. As if they had been waiting for Him all this time. And they say, look at what we've done with what you've given to us. And, and the Master says, well done, Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so here we have a clear depiction of what you and I should long for. What you and I as believers should be yearning for. We should be looking towards that day. Waiting for the master return. And if we are in fact waiting for the master return, then you and I won't be idle. If we're looking towards the day when the Master will come back, we're looking towards it with a sense of enthusiasm, and it should change how we do everything. They weren't viewing the Master's heart. They viewed Him as a generous Master. They're happy to be able to present to Him their fruitfulness. And, and what's even greater is that God didn't expect the one with two talents to earn five talents more, like the guy who started with Five I mean, to some of us, he gives less and he expects us to do proportionally to what he's been given to us. And 
Some of us, he gives more. And again, he asks us to do proportionally with what has been given to us. What he is after in all things is faithfulness. And there's joy in doing that. You know, perhaps some of you have been volunteering in the same spot for years. And you've served faithfully. And, and perhaps you just need to be reminded of the fact that that one day the Lord will return and reward your faithfulness. It really dispels our discouragement at times. I mean, after all, it is work. Say it would be easy. And we don't know everything that the, the, the servants did to make this sort of profit, but we get the idea that, that they're the opposite of the third servant who was lazy and unproductive. And instead, what they did is they worked with all of their vigor and all of their might. The Christian life requires that we, we push hard after righteousness, obedience, building up the kingdom of God, serving the body, because Jesus reminds us here in this place that all of that is infinitely worth it. In fact, the, the place that we begin when we, when we think about everything that's been given to us and we think about this entrustment from the Master, we Think about our holiness, first and foremost, with the gospel so wonderful that's been entrusted to us. We have to strive after holiness. I mean, that's worth a thousand times more than anything else you could do with your time. But here it gets even better because he promotes them. I mean, the first two servants, he promotes them. He, Tells them that they've been faithful with a little and then I'll set you over much. In other words, faithful stewardship in this life will result in greater responsibility in the life to come. And so if your concept of, of what life will be like afterwards for believers, if, it's, if it has something to do with floating on clouds and playing harps and just, you know, just relaxing, you need to widen your view, biblically speaking, of of the life to come, there will be responsibilities given to believers in the new heavens and the new earth, and what you do on this earth will directly affect the responsibilities and the, the, the privileges that are given to you in the new earth to come. Faithfulness in this life will lead to a greater glory to come in the next. And remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples and it always seems that they were fighting for positions of importance in the kingdom. We were told these parables, his, his 12 disciples were around him and, and, and they didn't always quite get it. And here they are saying, you know, Father, I want to, I want to sit at your right hand, Lord. And, and, um, but, but what we learn from this is that whether you're a learned theologian or whether you're someone who doesn't really know much past the basics of the gospel, if you're somebody who, who's been given a lot of resources or somebody who's been given a little, if you're somebody who has all sorts of abilities and you're somebody who doesn't, in either situation, the Lord is simply calling you to be faithful. You may be somebody who's a gifted teacher. You may be somebody who's great with kids. You, or you might be somebody who just simply wipes the handprints off the glass doors in the lobby, whatever He's given to you to do, He's calling you to be faithful with that. But again, it gets better. Did you see what He said about entering the joy of the Master? 
I mean, in that sentence, there is a sweet and precious summons. Here, he's being told, or we're being told, that the master himself is full of joy over the faithfulness of his servant. I mean, the ones who labor, the ones who take what the Lord has given to them and do everything that they can, there is this joy that, that the Lord welcomes us into. He loves them. He delights in their diligence, their sacrifice, their service. He invites them to share in that joy. Invites them to have fellowship and communion. Jesus is saying that if we will be faithful with the gospel entrusted to us, the gifts that have been given to us, the resources we have, the abilities we possess, and the life He's called us to, the joy that we get is Him. It's Him. We get to participate in an everlasting fellowship where we delight in Him and He delights in us Nothing could be more precious than that. So what are we doing with what has been given to us? Now, if you might you might have guessed it, but the guy who buried the one talent, well, that was a bad idea. It, it goes from bad to worse because the excuse he offers to the master isn't a very good excuse. The The third servant comes forward and says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, and so I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. He he does absolutely nothing with what the Lord has given to him. And think of it this way, most of us, we at least put our paycheck in a bank account. There's probably very few of us in here who take our money and just put it in a mattress. We do something with it. And here you have a servant that does absolutely nothing. He, he doesn't take the time to put it in a high interest savings account. He, he, he doesn't use any of it to invest and, and make anything. He doesn't even worry about it. His response is to make both an excuse and an accusation. Look at what he says. He said, I was afraid. You're an unfair master. Now, for, for many people, that's true. Not, not about God, but it's true about them and their, their view of God, their excuses of God. Your, your view of Jesus may be demanding. It may be unfair. It may be Jesus takes up a lot of my time. And so he's afraid of God, not in a healthy sense in which we're in awe and adoration of him, but in the sense in which he thinks wrongly about God's character. In fact, when the master comes, he basically says to him, here, take your money. Not my problem. So motivated by fear, he does nothing with what's been given to him. And you see, this is the, this is the image of the servant who never quite gets it. There are professing disciples in this parable, and And this person is someone who has lived all his life with great privileges. Jesus has given to the church, heard the gospel week in and week out, but has never grasped the goodness of the good news. The the gospel with which he's so familiar has never really sunk in. He does absolutely nothing with the grace that's being extended to him. The gospel just remains external to him. It's never actually changed his heart and all he has to show the Lord when he comes back 
are the privileges he's enjoyed in this life, but there's no fruit, there's no return on the master's investment. So while he's lived like, like a servant in the master's house, he is at last revealed as someone who has no real interest in serving the master of all. Now the fate of the third servant, this this fate is the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Six times this description shows up in, in Matthew. Each time it is depicting a, a literal hell. And the one talent he had was taken away from him. So, so here you have an incredible thing going on. Notice that the third servant isn't committing horrible crimes. The text doesn't say he was a really bad guy, he murdered people, he stole, he cheated, he committed adultery. None of that. I mean, he didn't steal the master's investment. He could have could have ran off with it. He just did nothing. I mean, God calls all believers to be faithful stewards of what He's given. Nothing more, nothing less. And this servant does nothing. He, he wasn't condemned because of what he did, but he was condemned because of what he didn't do. Now, what, what Jesus isn't saying and understand this really clear. What Jesus isn't saying is that the two faithful servants somehow earned their salvation. Somehow it's all works and no grace that couldn't be farther from the truth. This is simply reinforcing Jesus' point that, that our works are a necessary outworking in response to true and saving faith. And so we come to this passage and can safely say that do-nothing Christianity does not prove the genuineness of faith. It does the opposite. It makes me stop and question and wonder, have I truly come to understand the gospel of Christ? Now the Lord knows the heart of all, and perhaps there may be some of you in here, and when you're reading this text, you're looking at this text, and you find yourself right, right where the third servant is. You know, maybe you're not making apologetic arguments against God and you're not getting all sorts of trouble, but maybe you're just not simply doing anything. There's not a concern for the spread of the gospel. There's no concern for fellowship with others, studying the scriptures with others or by yourself. There's, there's no concern for the deeper things of Christ. You don't, you don't have a concern about growing in holiness and there's, there's every excuse, there's every reason for why we don't serve or sacrifice our time. And please don't hear me saying this as, that means you're not saved. I mean, that kind of judgment belongs to the Master. But hear me saying this. Don't be the third servant. Instead, Live your life in such a way that one day Jesus Christ, who returns, stands before you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because anything that you can do to reach that day, to live for that day, is infinitely worth it. What are you doing with what He's given you? Heavenly Father, we come to a story like this and, and we always have to examine ourselves in, in light of the Scriptures. And so, so what we would ask is, is that 
is that you would help us to help us to take this to heart. Help us to view your return as something so precious, something so weighty, something so incredible that we, we live for that day. Not just what we do today, but what we do tomorrow and what we do the days to come would all be characterized by this waiting, by this fruitfulness, by this productivity, by this living for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would work in us, bring us to maturity, work in us so that we would stand before you one day and hear those sweet and wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.